take out your Bibles. And if you would turn to Genesis chapter 35 as we make our journey into the final third here of the book of Genesis. And as we look at the life of Jacob, I think most of us, if you journeyed with us up to this point, if you've caught any of the recent messages, you can kind of see Jacob's life as one of those of highs and lows. And up to this point, probably been a few more lows than highs. Amen. One of the greatest things about the grace of God is that God allows us to do do-overs. Amen. And Jacob finally tonight gets that opportunity to go where he should have gone all along we see him finally going home. And as we look back on Jacob's life, if you remember when he came to Penuel, um, this thing happened to him that I think is essential in most people's lives. Not everyone needs a good old-fashioned beatdown, but I think most of us every once in a while need to take a little whooping on our pride at least, amen? If you're a man, say amen. Yeah, we, we, we can use it. And sometimes you ladies can use a little bit of that on your pride as well. But I think most of us at times can look back on our lives and say, man, I'm so God, glad, glad that God allowed me to have the air pulled out of myself. You know, that little deflation valve that's there on the back of your ankle where you're a little bit puffed up with your own accomplishments, your own abilities, the things that you think you can do in the strength of your flesh, and all of a sudden you bump into something to where you're not only sufficient, you're completely insufficient. Uh, you, you, you think you've got it going on, but you find out you don't have it going on at all. Uh, and so we finally see Jacob turn the corner, and he goes to where he's supposed to be, and should have been already, and in fact, so many of the problems that have come uh, his way, his family's way, came from this little bit of rebellion, this little bit of resistance, this time of delay, that he walked where he shouldn't have walked, he stood where he shouldn't have stood, he did the Psalm 1 thing, and he, he, he was there in with the scornful, he, he was there with the wayward person. He planted himself where he wasn't supposed to be. And finally, we, we kind of go from the desert to the mountains in tonight's uh, chapter. And so if you join me, we'll pray. We'll pick up in verse 1 here in Genesis 35. Father, we again just deposit ourselves into your living room of love. Lord, that you would just speak to us as your children that your word would come alive off of these pages and, and God is the, the ink in our Bibles represents really your fingertip inscribing these things through the hand of godly men who wrote as the Holy Spirit instructed them. God, we thank you for this record of a man's life who's filled with difficulty and problems that finally turns the corner and heads towards home. Help us, Lord, to never get to that place to where we need to make that turn. But Lord, if we do, that you would encourage us to always dial you up and to look where you're at and to go where you've called us. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Verse 1, and then God said to Jacob, arise and go to Bethel. Now, most of you, again, you know, that's where he's supposed to have been all this time. He, he had made the journey from Laban's house in Padam Aram. He was heading towards Bethel, but he stops. He goes to Shechem. He gets into all kinds of trouble. He has massive things that happen in his family. And so finally... God says to him, go and dwell there and make an altar to God who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. And so God's kind of given him a little bit of a history uh, of his own life. He says, look, when you fled, this is where you were supposed to go. Let's finally be completely obedient to what I've told you to do. And I pray that there's nobody in here tonight that actually has to have God say these things to us. But Unfortunately, I think most of us at some point in time will have to be reminded, Jeff, would you please go all the way where I told you to go? Will will you actually make the journey all the way to Bethel? That's where you're supposed to be. You've stopped. You kind of fell short a little bit in the area of obedience. And while I, I intend to beat no one up, I think all of us can recognize areas in our lives where we can say, yeah, that's a little bit of my story from last week or my story from last year or maybe... It's your story from today. You stop short of being fully obedient to what you know God wants you to do. And sometimes that's in maybe an area of marriage. Sometimes that's an area of your business life. Maybe that's an area of your personal walk. You, you know that you shouldn't be there. You shouldn't be doing that. Instead, you settle for someplace you're not supposed to be, hoping that somehow you can sanitize that place with your presence. Can I tell you, in you dwells no good thing. And wherever you are as a human being, you're going to have some problems because all of us have some problems that, that we, each one of us have sought our own way. And each one of us has the capacity to take something that is not of the Lord and bring it to fruition if we park ourselves where we're not supposed to be. As a matter of fact, it very often is the case that when God has told us to be somewhere, to do something, to act a certain way, and we choose to disobey God, and stop short of his goodness, stop short of his holiness, stop short of his best in our lives, that you're going to find out you're going to be exactly where Jacob has been for the last few chapters. Not in the middle of God's blessing, but in the middle of God's chastening. Praise God for his grace, even in his chastening. Amen? And Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, now I want you to notice the change here. Uh, And this is such a beautiful thing. Because up to now, Jacob's been a schemer. He's been a conniver. He's been a let's kind of do it carnal and paint it like it is like the Lord wants us to do this. Let's, Let's do things our own way, but somehow try and make it seem like this is okay with God. And so he says to all who are with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you. There's a couple of steps here, and they're important in each one of our lives. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Still stands. God's a jealous God. He loves us with an undying love, and he wants our full attention. He wants our full cooperation. He he doesn't want to compete with a foreign God. And now you're probably saying, well, I don't have any carved idols in my house. Uh, you know, I, I don't. You know, I don't have an astronaut pole. I don't even have a Buddha. I, you know, I don't have anything in my house that's like that. But do you have something that you pay more attention to than God? 
Do you have something in your house that means more to you than your relationship with the Lord? You see, whatever you worship, whatever you invest your time and your talent and your treasure in, that actually is a little God. And so Jacob is finally saying, look, let's clean up our house here. Put away the foreign gods and purify yourselves and change your garments. He's saying, look, we need to get right with the Lord. Now, granted, some of the reason they're not right with the Lord falls directly on his shoulders as the leader of this little expedition. You know, make no mistake, men especially, if you're here tonight and, and you uh, are, are a husband, you're responsible for leading your home, God's going to hold us especially accountable for the way that we have led our homes. Uh, there, there's a special bit of, of God's design in the way that he has made the family unit that we bear some special responsibility for making sure, sure that our families are not in harm's way. Jacob has failed at that. He's kind of messed up. But the good news comes along with this not quite so good news, and that is God's going to let him make it right. And then let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make there an altar to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me in the way which I have gone. Isn't that comforting to you? That even though Jacob went the wrong way himself, God was with him all the way, even in the mistakes. I love this. And that's not an excuse for us to give God less than our best. But it is something that's really important to remember. As I was saying this morning, God's a God of love. He doesn't hate you. He doesn't want you to suffer. And wherever you go, because the Holy Spirit is in you as a believer, God goes with you. And while he can't look on sin, he's not going to abandon you. He will never leave you nor forsake you, says the Lord. And so even in those dark moments, while he might not be directly acting on your behalf because you've chosen to cut yourself off from his help, he still knows right where you are and he is always there. And so they gave Jacob all the foreign gods that were in their hands, the earrings which were in their ears. And I don't know whether they got those at Idols R Us or what, but there was, you know, there was something bad dangling from their ears. There's no doubt about it. This is not going to be the last time that we're going to hear of the children of Israel doing something dumb with, with something made out of precious metal. And Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree, which was by Shechem. And they journeyed, and the terror of God was upon the cities that were all around them, that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. Do you see the Lord even instilling uh, a bit of protection on God's people? And so Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel. And so Luz has been renamed to Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan. And he and all the people who were with him. And he built an altar there and called the place El Bethel. And I love this. Because God can have a house, but is God in the house that's called his house? This is God in God's house. El is God. That's his name. So when you see El Ochim, 
That is the plurality of God. That's the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. When you see Eloah, that can be any two of the members of the Godhead. It's God plural, but not necessarily more than two. And when you see El, that's God's name. So he's saying, look, I want to rename this place because it was always God's house. But because I left God out, God actually wasn't here at Bethel where God should have been. God was with me and I was in Shechem, but now God is in the house is basically what he's saying. Can I tell you that you can have church and have no God? You can have a building and God's not there. The only thing that puts God anywhere is if God's people are there. God, of course, is omniscient and omnipotent and he is everywhere at all times. But we're talking about the the viable presence of the Lord. In other words, God acting on man's behalf. And so here in this case, because Jacob has made the choice to go where God has called him to go, God is with him at God's house finally. God said, I'll join you there. Because there God appeared to him and he fled from the face of his brother. And now Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died. Uh, And here's where when we look at these passages, we have to remember that God does in fact allow difficult things to happen to good people. Even people who have turned the corner and they're finally going the right direction. God doesn't promise to save us from absolutely every bit of difficulty. Uh, And and those who teach that God always does good things to his kids ignore the plain teaching of scripture. Because God allows all kinds of things and some of them not so good to happen to people who are actually doing well with the Lord. And so finally Rebecca's nurse died and she was buried below Bethel under the terebinth tree and so the name was called Alon Baruch. And then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padam Aram and blessed them. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. Your name shall not be called Jacob anymore. In other words, look, you are actually a heel catcher but I'm changing your name You're not going to be Jacob, the heel catcher, the deceiver anymore, but Israel, governed by God, shall be your name. And so he called his name Israel, not because of just a simple name change, but because his character had changed. Finally puts to practice his new name. And also God said to him, I am God Almighty. I am El Shaddai. I am the hero God. El Gabor, I am El Shaddai, the mighty one. God goes by many names. And this one, El Shaddai, is that one who is mighty. Be fruitful, multiply. And a nation and company of nations shall proceed from you. And kings shall come from your body. And the land which I give gave to Abraham and Isaac I give to you and to your descendants after you I give you this land one of the reasons that I believe we believe as Calvary Chapel that not only has the church not replaced Israel but in fact God still has a marvelous plan to redeem his people are the promises that are yet unfilled the ones that are incomplete regarding what God has promised to the nation Israel This is his land, 
is my land. The book of Joel reminds us of that. It's actually God's land, but God has given it in perpetuity to the Jewish people. And they will once again inherit it. And once they have inherited it for that final time, they shall never be removed from it. But there will be a time when the world is going to try and push them out of the promised land. Uh, And of course, I believe that that time is, is upon us. The whole world is arrayed against Israel. The whole world is trying to get Israel to give up more of the land that actually belongs to them because God says it belongs to them. It doesn't have anything to do with politics. It has everything to do with the fact that God made a promise to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that promise included the land that we know as Israel. Actually, it's most of the Middle East. God doesn't break his promises. It's just a couple of very specific things. The Jacob from you, the kings of Israel will descend. That is true. And they did. And we'll see that as we continue to journey through the Old Testament. And God gave them the land that's known as the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then God went up from him in the place where he talked to him. And so Jacob again built a pillar a place where he talked to him, a pillar of stone. And he poured a drink offering upon it and poured oil upon it. He says, look, I want to make a covenant here. And Jacob called the name of the place where God spoke to him, Bethel. And then he journeyed from Bethel. And when there was but a little distance to go to Epaphra or Ephrath, I'm both the same place, you know it as Bethlehem. Slightly south of Jerusalem today. They're on this journey. They're not quite all the way to Bethel. Rachel labored in childbirth. And she had a hard labor. And now it came to pass when she was in hard labor. That the midwife said to her do not fear. You will have this son also. And so the midwife knows that she's going to be able to save the baby. But not so much Rachel. And so it was, as her soul was departing, in other words, she died, that she called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin, son of my sorrow, to the son of my right hand. And so Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set a pillar on her grave, which is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. And then Israel journeyed and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Adair. And it happened that when Israel dwelt in the land that Reuben went and lay with Bela, his father's concubine, and Israel heard about it. And we'll finish this at the end. So Jacob finally gets to this place where he's doing what God asked him to do. And the first thing that happens to him As his wife dies. One of them. His favorite. He's going to have some additional problems that we'll look at at the end of this chapter. But as you kind of have to ask the question, is Jacob actually ready for what lays ahead? And the answer is probably no. He's not that far removed from being in a place that he shouldn't be. But God does allow him to come to the end of himself and finally... 
after, after the tragedy that we saw last time with Dinah, and, and finally he's beginning to see the hand of God in his life, and now he finally makes the decision he should have made a long time ago. You don't want to have to have God to do these kinds of things in your life. And the secret to that is listen the first time. Not the second time or the third time or the fourth time or the tenth time. Listen the first time. And so Jacob now gets this, this renewal in his life. He's actually going to live in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. And these, these little journeys that we sometimes take, and I think we all uh, take them at times, really are those places where we can actively see God working uh, in our life. And so Jacob now gets to understand El Shaddai. He, he now gets to see God for who God really is. You know, sometimes when I'm not listening to God, my God's about this big. Because he's limited by the obedience that I have exhibited in my own life. I, I see him as big as my input, basically. Not that God really changes, but the way I relate to him is very definitely diminished. When I'm being disobedient to the Lord, don't expect to see big things out of God. Oh, he's still going to be providentially good, and he's still going to have his same character and his same nature, but his blessings flow forth from our obedience. And so when I'm obedient to the maximum degree that I possibly can, that's when I see the biggest changes in my own life personally. That's when I see a big God. When I have done my part, that's when I see God the largest. It's one of the secrets to, I think, the victorious life of a believer. But I want you to also notice that during this time of renewal and rededication to the Lord, to this time when he's finally making sacrifices for God, he's doing the right things the right way, first thing that happens is his son's going to commit this terrible sin at the end of the chapter, and he's going to lose his favorite wife, Rachel. So God doesn't spare us. He, he doesn't leave out all these difficulties. And what happens to a mature believer is this. Instead of crying out and going, why God? Why would you do this? I, I'm finally doing the right thing. A mature believer cries out, what God? What are you trying to teach me? What is it that you're doing right now in my life? Because I know you love me. I know you care about me. I know I'm doing the right thing as best as I know how to do. What is it that you want me to know from this experience that's going on in my life? Because I know you. And you did not have me turn around to just simply destroy me. There's a reason for everything that God allows and does. And to that end, we see Jacob now get a, a, get a do-over. And there's um, five things that I kind of want to pull out of this in, in the middle part of this. And no matter how many times you failed, I want you to remember some of these Old Testament characters because they are such an encouragement to each of us in those times when we've messed up. Because the truth of the matter is, I would love to tell you that every one of you in this room will never sin again. If you came in tonight, some special thing happened when you came through the door. 
We have an anti-sin repellent. It's kind of like Teflon or something that we sprayed on you when you came in. And from here on out, you're never going to stumble. You'll never fall. You'll never sin. Your life is just going to be a perfect bed of beautiful Jesus roses. But probably not. And not because even most of you don't want that. But within you still resides a sin nature. In this world, you still have your flesh and this world and the devil to contend with. Um, You're not totally perfect yet. You one day will be completely perfected. You're going to be glorified in heaven. And you will be sinless finally, but we're not there yet. And so chances are you're going to go through a couple of times of defeat. We've already seen that in the life of Abraham, amen? Abraham was a little bit of a roller coaster. Isaac, a little bit of a roller coaster. When we get into the books of First and Second Samuel, David is an absolute disaster of a roller coaster. He's like Magic Mountain on steroids. He's like, you know, it's like, he, he's straight up going as fast as he can. He's heading towards heaven. And the next moment, he's on the downhill slide careening towards the ground. We'll see that in Jonah. We've seen that already in the life of Peter. There's these wonderful things that happen in our life that sometimes uh, come after these, these failures, but God always gives us an opportunity if we are willing to repent, if we're willing to obey, if we're willing to turn around, God meets us right where we're at and he can make beauty out of ashes. He does that. First thing we see is that God is once again finally speaking to Jacob. Jacob had kind of lingered about 60 miles away from Bethel. He was close, but not close enough. Kind of like hand grenades and horseshoes, right? You don't actually have to hit somebody with a hand grenade to kill them. And the same is true with our walk with the Lord. You can kind of get close. You're still going to get a little bit of the blast. The best thing you could do is get all the way there. You, you, you don't want to kind of sort of be obedient to the Lord. You want to go all the way. If God tells you to do something, do it with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul, with all of your understanding, with all of your strength. Be all in for the Lord. If you want the best opportunity for the Lord to work in your life, be all in. But Jacob had kind of lingered. And during that time of lingering, and I'm sure some of you in here can say yes and amen to this, have you ever noticed when you're in disobedience, the voice of the Lord kind of disappears, doesn't it? That's exactly what your Bible says will happen, by the way. The prophet Isaiah said, your sins have hidden my face from thee so that the king, the Lord, doesn't hear your prayers. He's, he's not paying attention in the finite sense. Of course, he knows everything. It's not like it's blindsiding him. But he's saying, look, Jeff, if you really want me to talk to you, you need to do what I'm telling you to do. It's kind of like, you know, it's kind of like God's version of a timeout. He kind of puts you on a timeout, and you're wandering around, you're sulking, and you're doing all the things you're going to do. And the whole time, God's going, I'd really love to help you out of this, but I'm asking you to turn around and go the other way. And until you do that, don't count on me talking to you much. Well, God now finally here in verse 1 begins to speak to Jacob again. It's rather like the churches in the book of Revelation. And they're in chapter 2, if you remember, the, the church of Ephesus 
needed to return from where they had fallen. They had lost that first love. They were no longer where God wanted them to be. There was something good about the church, but God really wasn't at work in their life anymore. And so God's saying to you, saying to me, if you want God to speak to you, you kind of need to go where God's likely to do that. You know, sometimes when I'm, when I'm talking to people about maybe some issue in their life and they're sharing with me kind of all the things that are going on, going, well, the problem actually is fairly clear to me. You've placed yourself someplace where you're not likely to hear the voice of God. You know, if you walk around in anger and bitterness and hate and, and you stomp your feet and you just constantly, it's like, Lord, you don't understand. No, God actually does understand and he's waiting for you to understand that he understands. He's not going to waste his time. He's going to remind you, look, um, I'm God. I'm El Shaddai. And if you'd like to talk to me, you need to change your attitude. But right now you're on a timeout. The second thing we see here is Jacob is finally leading his household. Amen? Jacob has finally decided to do what he should have done all along, which is lead his household in actually following what God has said to them. And so he gives them a couple of things to do. Notice verse 2, and Jacob said to his household, all who were with him, not just his household, but those that saw his household, were watching what was going on in his household. Jacob speaks and says, put away your foreign gods. The ones that are among you. Now you're probably saying, you know, I don't really have any of those. But here in our culture, we have gods that are things like wealth and materialism and drugs and alcohol and immorality and pornography and entertainment. We have a lot of other things that go in that category of those things which we pay homage to and we worship and we invest time and talent and treasure in. And what Jacob's finally doing is saying, look, I want God to be God in our home. I'm not God. Our home's not God. Our possessions are not God. He's saying, look, let's get rid of the idols that are in our house. Jacob's finally doing what he should have done a long time ago. Remember, Rachel had actually stolen Laban's idols. Remember that? She's wandering around. She thinks she's gotten away with it. But whenever you serve the world, the world is going to extract a price from you. And so you can carry around those idols. You can take that stuff with you. You can cling to that junk that's hurting you and harming you and and really kind of the root cause of why you're not following hard after the Lord. But God knows that stuff's there. He's not fooled. It's not like he's, oh, I don't see that idol. You can stuff it underneath your camel's blanket. You can bury it someplace under the floor of your tent. But God knows that those things are there. And so Jacob is saying, look, we need to do some house cleaning here. And so he says, let's get rid of our idols. And by the way, the history of the children of Israel is one idolatrous event after another. They struggled with this big time. And so I think it's a picture of of the church at times struggling with seasons of idolatry. Sometimes idolatry can be things like intellect. Sometimes it can just simply be laziness. I know some people whose idol comes on a plate, serves at a restaurant. 
don't, don't be wounded. I'm not trying to hurt anybody. But if your idol comes in a round tub and has to be frozen, get rid of your idol. Those types of things can harm you. And so what the Lord is saying is, look, please don't let there be anything that takes the place of me. And then a second thing, and it kind of goes with the first. Man, your clothes are filthy. Your mind has been filled with stuff that shouldn't be in there. And so he says, you need to purify yourself. Now, to a Hebrew, this had great meaning. Because when you travel to Israel, one of the ways that you know you found a Hebrew settlement is the presence of mikveh. Those are the ritual baths in which a Jewish man would go and cleanse himself for his family. And he would go and take a ritual bath and he'd turn his hands up to heaven and praise the Lord and the sin would drip off of his elbows. It was a big deal for the Jewish people to be right with the Lord, to be cleansed. Praise God, we have a little bit easier way to do that today. For if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen? But God wants a clean house. So he's asking us to take off the old garments. The very same thing, by the way, that the Apostle Paul says in Colossians chapter 3. Put off the old man with all of his deeds and put on the new man. Take off all the garbage. But don't walk around naked. Put on the new man. And so Jacob is getting an a Old Testament view of this very principle. Purify yourself. Change your clothes. Now I want you to know something. During these times, this was not like they went down to Ross dressed for less and bought a new outfit. Amen? Most everybody only had one, maybe two. They might have had a cloak and maybe a tunic. This was a big deal. You had to make a choice to change your garments. It was going to cost you something. It was going to be very expensive to change your clothes. And in some cases, and and through uh, a, a number of historical writers, Josephus being one, Jerome being another, talking about the value of clothes, Alfred Edersheim and his Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. As you, as you look at some of these things historically, the cost of a tunic was equivalent to an entire year's worth of wages. So for us here in California, that, that means if you're a, a, a married person with a family of four, that garment probably is going to cost you fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000. It's a whole year's worth of your earning capacity. It was expensive. It costs you something to get right with the Lord, is the point. It's going to cost you something. Because you can't stay the way it is. And David actually expressed this best. He said, I will not give to the Lord that which costs me nothing. That includes us. God wants us to be clean. God wants us to be holy. God desires for our lives to look the way he wants them to look. And he, and he was really saying to him, look, this is not going to be easy. It's not going to be something as simple as taking a bath. When David penned the 51st Psalm, he said, 
Have mercy on me, O God. According to your loving kindness, I know you love me and I know you're kind as you love me. According to the multitude of your tender mercies, do not hold my transgressions. Blot them out. Wash me thoroughly of my iniquity and cleanse me of my sin. He's saying, look, I I just want to get clean. And there's such a beautiful thing that happens when we get right with God. And again, I'm not asking for a show of hands, but probably most of you know that when you're not okay with God, you also don't feel okay. You feel dirty. You feel like you need a bath. You feel like you need to go in there. No amount of, you know, any kind of body wash is going to do the trick. You need some soul wash. You need a good scrubbing. Those old garments typify that old life, exactly as Isaiah 64 says. It's like, sometimes you just got to get rid of it. You got to exchange it. You need a new garment. A third thing, God protects Jacob and his household. You can kind of see it. after the, Now remember, there's been a murderous assault on the Shechemites by Simeon and Levi. So Jacob's family are not exactly popular in the land that they're living in. You get it? They're pretty much public enemy number one. And they're not the most prosperous. They're not the most numerous. And in fact, they are now journeying, which puts them in even greater harm's way. Because when you're traveling, it's not like you can go out and collect things from your own field and you have the comfort of a walled city. You're now wandering down 60 miles south through the Judean foothills, which are about as barren as any stretch of desert you've ever seen. It's rock and dirt and not much else. But God protects them. God sends terror upon the people of the land. And basically saying, those are my kids, you don't touch them. So God does have special protection for us. A fourth thing we see here is Jacob worshiping God finally. Up to this point, he's kind of been worshiping his own scheming, his own plans, his own stuff. He's been kind of doing it his own way. And Jacob is finally now going, look, I want to get this right. I want to have one God in my life. God is jealous for you. God is jealous for you. He loves you. But he doesn't want to compete. And he especially doesn't want to compete with a place. He doesn't want to compete with a thing. He doesn't want to compete with another God if you have one. And so we need to turn ourselves over to the Lord in a way that's totally meaningful so that we can worship him. It's like, God, I'm letting go of everything that stands in the way of my relationship with you. You know, and I've seen some really good things become idols in people's lives. I've seen church attendance become idols in people's lives. They get so depressed, like, you, you talk to him, it's like, oh, I, you know, I only made it to five services last week. I talked to a guy maybe six months ago because we don't have services on Saturday here. He had so turned church attendance into an idol in his life 
that he went to another church on Saturday. Now bear in mind, he was here the other six days. I asked him, I said, where's your day of rest? Oh, you know, the devil will come. I'm going, well, if you can't be obedient to what God told you about a day of rest, I'm pretty sure the devil coming is not the problem. The problem's you. He got all flustered. Are you saying it's wrong to go to church? No, I'm saying you worship going to church. You think that going to church is the answer to a personal relationship with the creator of the universe. You're banking on other people putting you in the right place at the right time by going and visiting somebody at the church and that your church attendance is somehow going to blot out the way you're actually living. Because the truth of the matter is there was a pretty major sin issue involved. It's like, well, I'll just go to church. I've had people tell me that's like, well, I got to go back to where I got baptized. I got to go back to where I had this encounter with God. I need to go back to that camp. I need to go back to that rock. I need to go back. You don't need to go back. You need to go forward. There is no place save the seat of your heart that God cares about. God's not present in a place for you. God is present in you. And so wherever you are, he'll be there when you're right with him. He'll still be there even if you're not right with him, but he's not gonna, you're not going to be experiencing the presence of the Lord. So you can have those mountaintop experiences in your car in a parking lot. Now that doesn't diminish the beauty and the wonder of mountaintop experiences or retreats or camps. Look, I, I was in the camp industry for decades. So I believe in camps. I believe in retreats. I believe in getting away with God. I believe in spending time away with the Lord. The problem is, wherever you are, that's where you are. (laughs) So if you take a bunch of junk with you to the most beautiful sanctuary in the middle of God's creation... You can still be totally in sin in your mind. Completely away from worshiping the Lord. Worship happens in your heart. It doesn't just happen in a place. Finally, Jacob gets that. And again, don't bathe yourself in sentimentalism. And sentimentalism is not necessarily a bad thing. But when sentimentalism becomes your God, it is a bad thing. I had a conversation last week. You know, I was in second service and somebody took my seat. And I kind of looked around and I was like, really? I didn't know there was brass plaques out there with people's names on them. I didn't want to seem like I didn't care because I actually did. But it's kind of like, well, sit in the next pew. Well, that one's, you know, God meets me right there. I'm going, man, if God is only resident in that one spot in the sanctuary, Lord help us. I'm pretty sure the same God that's present in row one's in row 20 as well. Don't get caught up in that. You let God be where you are, wherever it is. You're going to find that he's there too. 
the fifth thing, God finally appears again personally to Jacob and, and meets him with his new name governed by God, ruled by God. And he meets him as El Shaddai, God Almighty. So you want to see the mighty works of God? Let me show you these things right now, Jacob. Jacob's restoration is now complete. He, he's finally back where God wants him to be. He'd come from the house of Laban to the house of God. He left the house of struggle and toil, and he's now in the place where God's speaking to him again. He's starting to really live by his new name, Israel. We see Jacob finally gets a new son to go with his new life. So very often the Lord just gently reminds us, look, well done. Anybody else in here need encouragement from time to time? I think most of us do. I know I do. I I can't tell you those those times when somebody completely unknowingly will just say something kind or nice or just a reminder of all the things that God's doing. And and very often it's actually my bride. She'll say something. It's like, wow, yeah, I forgot. I just wasn't paying attention to the good things that the Lord's doing. And there's just that gentle encouragement. Right? Things are better. Things are good. God is with us. And that voice comes. And so with that voice, we see in verses 16 and 17, this joy finally of this, this new birth. Remember, Rachel yearned for another son. She wanted to have another boy. Jacob only has one son by her. And that was Joseph. And God now answers that prayer. And now Jacob finally has the 12th son. It's Benjamin. But the moment that happens, notice what also comes sometimes with that new life. And we don't like this part. I don't like this part. But it nonetheless is part of the reality as long as we're in this fallen world. Sometimes with the joy of that wonderful new thing comes the weeping of maybe even death. A difficult time, maybe a season of sickness or, you know, some type of financial problem. Something that you would say, God, why? And that's where we have to ask the what question, not the why question. The why we may never know while we're here, but we can know the what if we care to ask the right question. It's like, God, what are you trying to tell me? What do you want to show me? So back in chapter 30, Rachel said to Jacob, give me children or else I will die. Now she's going to finally bear that son. And and life so very often for us as the body of Christ is a mosaic of light and shadow and color and tone and just all of these little pieces put together I don't know how many of you have ever looked into a kaleidoscope. I would think it's most of us. Maybe you had those ones back when some of us older folks were a little bit younger, you know. And that was actually considered a really high-tech Christmas gift. It's like, whoa, a cardboard tube with pieces of glass in it. That's awesome, Dad. <laughs> you're, kind of, you know, you're looking into that. And now it's like virtual reality. It's like, whoa, that was a condor that just went by, you know. But you remember, and I don't know if you've ever seen a really good one, 
but there are some pretty amazing kaleidoscopes that are actually very high tech and very high quality. And just a slight adjustment. And all of a sudden, those little tiny pieces of glass shift just enough to make some incredible new pattern in your life. And I think that's the way God works in our lives sometimes. All the pieces are already there. Everything's there. The light's there. The darkness is there. The shadow's there. The pieces are there. But God just shuffles them just a little bit. And all of a sudden, it's that new experience. And it might not be something you like. And then he shuffles it just a little more. And it's something glorious. And he shuffles it a little more. And maybe it's some new addition to your family. He shuffles it a little more. And maybe it, it, it turns into some new position at work that you weren't counting on. God's always twisting our kaleidoscopes. He's always tweaking it a little bit. And every time you look in there, it's just a little bit different. And in this case, man, the joy, the sorrow. We see the redemption finally. Benoni, the son of my sorrow, the son of my trouble is another way to look at it. Yeah, it was a lot of trouble. It killed her. She died. You know, sometimes there are things in our lives that we can't explain. And you wouldn't think that God would choose to allow this son, which should be this extreme tidbit of joy in in their lives, to actually be also the source of sorrow. But any of you who are parents and you know that your children can bring you the greatest heights of joy and also the deepest depths of sorrow. they come together. They're like a package deal. It's like, praise the Lord. You got an A. You also got an F. (laughs) Awesome. You're doing great on the sports team, but you're going to get thrown out of school because you got no fight. Kind of all depends on your name is how that goes. You know, what, what, what are you about? When you have the right kind of name, you, re, you rebound from those kinds of things. We also see, finally, there's a walk of love. For more than 20 years, Jacob um, has been past this place where he set up the first pillar. Can you imagine spending 20 years kind of not walking in the things that God wants you to do? I would think that there's going to be quite a level of joy and also it's kind of like, man, what was I thinking? Why did I spend so much time away from the Lord? And so on the way at Ephrath, which means fruitful, on their way to Bethlehem, not only is there this great joy, but there's this great sorrow. Rachel gives birth And at the same time, she dies, and she's buried right there. One of the most holy sites in Judaism is Rachel's tomb in Bethlehem. It's kind of actually a shock when you see it today. That's actually the walled compound. It's in in the West Bank. Bethlehem is actually not in the area of Israel that's actually controlled primarily by Israel, but rather by the Palestinians. And so in order to protect Rachel's tomb, which it is purported that Rachel's bones are still in Rachel's tomb, 
I had to put up this gigantic security fence, a huge guard tower complex. Rachel's tomb is behind the wall. You go through scanners, just like you were going into a museum to go in and visit bones. To go and look at a sarcophagus for all intents and purposes. Jacob set up a pillar and that pillar is still there in Rachel's tomb. And once you get inside, all it is is a simple little dome. And inside of it, there's this basically a casket, if you will, or a sarcophagus. But the crazy thing is, really if it were not for the death of Rachel and the birth of Jesus, no one would ever remember Bethlehem. Guess who's in the lineage of Jesus and King David? It's none other than Rachel and Jacob. And so this little tiny place becomes kind of a mark along the way for the children of Israel. Matthew connects Jeremiah's reference to Jacob actually with Herod's murder of the innocent children. When you read Matthew chapter 2 and you, you see Herod begin this slaughter of the innocents trying to wipe out the Messiah. Herod was an Idumean and we'll actually look at the lineage of Esau next time. He was from the land of Red, from Edom. And here in this little tiny courtyard exudes these new kinds of sorrow that have come into this family's life after all of these years. No human experience goes unnoticed by God. You know, sometimes we think that God is just distant from all of our life and living, but he's not. He knows Jacob's brokenheartedness. He, he knows what's going to happen with Reuben, who's now going to go off on a tangent and going to do the unthinkable. But as you look at this, there, there's a new kind of sorrow that's going to finally descend onto this family. I'll pick up in the second half of verse 22. And now the sons of Jacob were 12. And so with Benjamin, they become complete And now the sons of Leah were Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and Simeon and Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel were Joseph and Benjamin. The sons of Billa, Rachel's maidservant, were Dan, Naphtali. The sons of Zilpha, Leah's maidservant, were Gad and Asher. And these were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padam Aram. And Jacob came to his father at Mamre and Kirjath Arba which is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had dwelt. And now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. And being old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. So we're going to find that Isaac also buried in the same land. But as Reuben kind of embarks on this, this terror in this family, Reuben is going to take one of his father's maidservants and and as he does that, he's basically saying, I'm taking over and this is going to come back to haunt the family later. 
It's an ugly thing. Reuben was stained with guilt and shame. But Jacob has a little bit to do with the fact that they were even in a place to where Reuben could pick up that ugly habit of his lustful thinking. And and so some of that stuff is going to kind of continue to haunt the family. And you don't want that. And and you don't want to, to put your family in harm's way. And while it appears that kind of here at the end of the story that Reuben's life really is going to be dedicated to kind of creating some issues within the family. Jacob exposed Reuben's sin later. We're going to see that. He's going to cast him off. Going to replace, going to, going to bring in some replacements basically for, for Reuben and for Simeon. And bottom line is, is our lives are a delicate balance at times. God had forgiven Jacob and Joseph and Benjamin going to be the two boys that are going to be the outstanding ones to be sure. But the others, every last one of the others, we're going to see have some problems. I learned that from their father. They, they got some really poor instruction. And so be careful. Make sure that you travel all the way to where God wants you to go. Be completely obedient, not partially obedient. Get rid of the idols in your house. Clean up your life. And stay that way. You may still have some difficulty. There's no automatic protection for anybody. That you're not going to go through some difficult things. But your best opportunity to limit those things is by turning away from the things that God doesn't want you to and going to where God wants you. Amen? Would you stand and we'll pray together. Some of the pastors are going to come up and be available for prayer. Maybe something going on in your life. Something God wants to do. Some new thing. Maybe you've got some challenges that you're facing. Remember that the Lord is near to those who are near to him. And so if you want that, that's what God wants. Just ask him. Father, thank you for being so good to us. Thank you for blessing us, Lord. Thank you for the do-overs in our lives to where we took a long time getting from Padam Aram to Bethel. But you were with us all along the journey, helping us to get the restarts that we need. Lord, help us to not ever put ourselves in that space and place in the first place. Help us to be honoring to you in all that we think and do and say. Lord, fill us with your spirit. Wash us and make us fresh and new. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.